Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. We are in the middle of a series called Live Loud. We're walking through the book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians that lived in the town of Colossae. Last week, we kind of started this, and, and I told you why we're calling this series Live Loud. Paul's celebrating them. They're new Christians. They're really excited about Jesus, and they're, they're doing faith, hope, and love really well. And so Paul just kind of celebrates them. And so Colossae is a, is a unique town in that it, when you think of Colossae, I want you to think about the movie Cars, Lightning McQueen, and Radiator Springs, and all that goes along with that, because these folks were relatively new Christians, and, and their town was a lot like Radiator Springs, that it, it had been bypassed, and it had an earthquake kind of devastated, but yet they were still people of hope and joy, and man, they're still fired up about Jesus, and they're still fired up about Christianity. Paul had never been there. Um, matter of fact, when Paul writes this letter, he's not really in prison. He's in what we call house arrest. He's in Rome, awaiting to see Caesar, but he has a prison guard that's with him 24-7, but he's in a home. And so people can come see him, people can bring him clothes, people can bring him food and bring him news from the outside world. And a lot of theologians believe that a lot of that time was just Paul and some of his disciples just sitting in this house and talking about Jesus and talking about theology and the study of God and so on and so forth, all right? And so let me, let me put a map up on the screen because Colossae is in, this is a modern map. This is not like Bible times. This is today. This is from the Google, okay? And so Colossae's in modern-day Turkey, which is now strong Islamic presence, right? And Paul is in Rome, in the little boot of Italy, right? Rome's the capital of Italy. And between Rome and between Colossae, you can see is the nation of Greece. So to help you understand the full context of what's going on in this letter, I have to go a little bit historical. I have to help you see what's going on in history and, and why Paul's saying some of the things he says, specifically why he's saying what he's saying today. There was a series of wars between the Romans, or the Italians, and the Greeks. The Greeks were a world superpower, and they were big into philosophy, and, and the Greeks had hundreds, if not thousands, of gods. They had a god for everything. And then there was just about a 200-year period where five different battles took place between the Greeks and the Romans, and the Greeks and the Romans. I, I always remember, and I love history. And so I had a high school world history teacher by the name of Mr. Fairman, and one day he comes into class and dressed as a Roman centurion. He comes in and, full, and he just tells this battle like it's from his perspective of one of the Roman-Greek wars and, and so on and so forth. So five major conflicts, couple of centuries of war. Eventually, the Romans come out on top. The Romans become the lone world superpower. And when Paul's writing this letter to the church, to the Christians in Colossae, Rome is, the, is kind of the dominant force. But because Greece is between Rome and Colossae, and, and because the Greeks had been a superpower prior to, there's a lot of Greek influence, specifically when it comes to Greek mythology, when it comes to Greek religion, and, and they had a god for everything. They had sky gods and sea gods and under-the-earth gods and titans and giants and agriculture gods and health gods, and you name it, they had a god 
for it. And so the Greek mythology influenced the Roman culture. It was certainly prevalent in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Colossae and Thessalonica, which are all letters that Paul wrote to those people. So before the name of Jesus, before the good news, the story of Jesus reaches these places, they already had a religious background. It just wasn't with Jehovah. It just wasn't with Jesus. It wasn't with Judeo-Christian religious background. So they would take the message of Jesus, but there's always this temptation to go back what we grew up in. There was always this temptation to, to bring some of their old spiritual background and sprinkle it on top of Jesus. And they had gods for everything. So let me give you an example. You might have a Christian preacher come through and, and he would say, yes, we worship God, Jehovah, our creator, yay! And we worship Jesus Christ, his one and only begotten son, yay! But then he would say something like, hey, don't forget about the angels. And because Greeks and Romans and their cultures were used to having gods for everything, they would, they would also worship angels like they were other gods. And that would resonate with the Greeks and the Romans and before I get to Colossians chapter 1, which is, which is where we're going, I want to take a quick sidebar into Acts chapter 8. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. I'm just going to put a couple of verses up on the screen. And I'm going to tell you a story about a man named Simon who gets saved. And then I'm going to kind of leave Scripture for a little bit and go into church history because I think Simon is a part of the Colossians story that we're going to talk about today. Acts chapter 8 verse 9 says this, a man named Simon had been a sorcerer. He'd practice magic. He could impress the crowds and he could do sleight of hand stuff and make people think that he could dabble into the supernatural. Simon the sorcerer, for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one or the power of God. And they listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with magic. Verse 12, but now the people believe Philip's message. Well, Philip was one of the early disciples. Philip was one of the early missionaries that took the gospel and took the name of Jesus and the story of Jesus and the cross of Christ and redemption. He took that to different places. And so people are hearing Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself got saved. Simon himself believed. And was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed at the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. Now, Philip's not doing sleight of hand magic. He's not just doing some card tricks and, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. God literally put miracles upon those apostles that they would go, and, and it was adding validity to the message in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Simon the sorcerer does magic, draws crowds, he gets saved, and for a little while, he goes with Philip. For a little while, He's preaching the true message of Jesus. Now, this, what I'm about to tell you is not actually in Scripture. It's not part of the biblical narrative. It comes from other historical writings from in and around this time. It's part of what we might call church history. Simon eventually goes out on his own. And Simon kind of reverts back to some of those ways. Hey, I'm here to talk about Jesus. And um, to get your attention, to make you think I'm a really big deal... He would use some of his magics. And of course, the crowds didn't know what were going on. They were easily amused. Oh, wow. And so they thought that Simon was operating in the supernatural. And so surely he must be 
from God, and surely he must be one of the apostles. And so Simon became a really big deal, and he would draw crowds. And so he would do a little bit of magic and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of it. And he became an overnight success. If you are not rooted in what you know and what you believe about Jesus, you will quickly fall for bad teaching. Somebody that come and put on a little, pretty good little show and make you feel good about yourself or wow you with some magic tricks or whatever. And, and it's pretty easy. And so Colossae fell into that category. They were new Christians. They weren't really rooted in what they knew about Christ and what they knew about God. And so they would fall for some fancy preacher that would come through or somebody like Simon would come through and do some magic show and, and they would talk a little bit about Jesus. And so those early Christians would just kind of fall into this bad theology. You're not really rooted in your faith. And so Paul writes this letter and he does two things. First and foremost, and we talked about this last week. And if you weren't here last week, you can go on our YouTube channel, you can go on our website, our media page, and, and you can get the foundation of this, this series called Live Loud. And Paul celebrates their zeal. He celebrates who they are as Christians and their faith, hope, and love. And he's like, man, I've never met you, but I've heard about what God's doing in you. And that's where we get this idea of live loud faith. I hope that my faith, I hope that my character, my Christianity is living loud enough that people can see Jesus in us. And secondly, he not only celebrates them, but he helps center them on Jesus. And he's going to be a little bit teachy. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be just, just a little bit teachy. Because that's what he does, is he's just teaching about the core of who Jesus is and what they should think and what they should do. So I, <clears throat> I don't know how you learned the ABCs, but I learned the ABCs by singing them to a little nursery rhyme called Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. <laughs> Never knew that. Yeah, you, you knew that, right? Okay. And so I'm not a good alphabetizer. So even to this day, if I'm having to alphabetize something, I sing the song. I can start at four different places on the song. Obviously, I can start at A, B, C. Like if I get up into E, F, and G, I have to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay. But I can also start at H. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Some of you started H. You know what I'm talking about. You don't start at A. You can start at H. I can also start at Q. Q, R, S, T, U, V. And I can start at W, but I have no idea why you would start at W. Now, from W, X, Y, Z, nobody's, I mean, it just, it, it's just a thing. So when we were, when our kids were little, we wanted them to know a phone number for any crazy emergency reason that they ever needed to call us. You know, I wanted my kids to know my phone number. So I taught them my phone number to the tune of Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. Right? So... 918-277-9741. And that's how Landon learned my cell phone number. And I'd make it, we'd be singing down the car. 918 you know? And so we take ideas and we lay it on top of music and it helps us to retain it. Music is so helpful. Matter of fact, I'm just going to start singing my sermons. Opera style. Jesus is the Okay, I won't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. First service booed me at that point. So thank you for being gracious, right? It's a little harsh. This is why we do worship. Okay, some of what we do in worship is we take ideas and thoughts and biblical concepts of God and we put it to songs. You want to get a little bit crazy? Some of these hymns that we love and sing in church. 
they were actually theological ideas that were put to songs that were often singing in pubs. And so we take these ideas about God and we put them to music. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You might not memorize a verse in the Bible about the amazing grace of God, but you can sing along with the song. I can stop singing and most of us in the room can quit singing. Christ alone, cornerstone, we may come. See what I'm saying? So we take these ideas and these thoughts about God and we put them to music and it just has this power to get into us so that we can recall it and remember it so much easier. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I don't know if that's what Paul's doing or not. Some of the theologians that I read suggested it is. First, there's only one. Colossians chapter 1, the first chapter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15 through verse 20, which is what I'm going to read. We'll read these five verses this morning. Is actually an ancient Christian hymn. It's a song. It's a poem. I would imagine in the original language that it was written in, it was probably absolutely beautiful and rhymed. And so for us in the English, as it's been translated, it's just deep. It's just theological. Honestly, it's going to hurt your brain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fry your brain here. I'm gonna, I mean, we're going to go deep today. You said, I asked you to be in this message already for the word. And you said amen. And you clapped. And so BK just going to go there. And so this hymn, Paul wrote, so the early Christians could sing it. They may not memorize the letter, but they could sing the song. And this hymn would keep them centered on Jesus. Christ alone. Here we go. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, going to verse 20 is just this beautiful theological poem. Christ is the visible image of of the invisible God. And I'm, I'm just, I'm going to take verse 15 and I'm going to, because every sentence is bam, bam, bam. It's full of just this big, beautiful idea and concept about God. So Christ, the invisible image of the invisible God, he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Christ is. Verse 16, for through Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning. He's supreme over all who rise from the dead, meaning he was the first one. And the whole church is going to be caught up and we're going to rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. Back in the garden where Adam and Eve ate the fruit and disobeyed God, there became this separation. But through Christ, now there's this opportunity for God to be reconciled unto humanity. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. I mean, it's deep for us. But it's just this beautiful poem that Paul writes and the early Christians would, would sing this hymn. It's deeply theology, theological, theological. It's a, just a big church word. Like for some of your younger kids, maybe you haven't been to high school yet or you have and you took biology. Bio, it's life. Ology is the study of. So biology is the study of life. 
psychology. Psych, it's the study of our thoughts and our emotions and our mind. Psych, and ology, it's the study of. So psychology is the study of our thinking and our mental processing. Theos, theo, means God. So theology is the study of God. And I'm just, this is just some big theology, deep idea concepts about God. To be honest with you, it'd been a whole lot easier for me to walk up here and go, hey, let's just open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 today, and let's just start there. It would have been so much easier for me to just skip over this hymn, but almost feels like, man, it would be tragic to miss this most beautiful passage of the New Testament where Paul is pouring out just some deep thoughts and ideas about who God is. There's a term in Christian education we call practical theology, theology, the study of God, making that practical. It's the idea or taking big ideas about God, like this hymn, okay? And then connecting it to why it matters today. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. I'm gonna make that, make that practical for today. I'm gonna make that mean something for Thursday afternoon at, at two o'clock. We're taking theology, we're taking the big things of God and we're making it practical in our everyday life, okay? Colossians 1.15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. I'm really not gonna leave that verse today. There's this whole hymn, I could spend seven weeks just walking through this hymn, but just today I want you to, we're, just, we're really just gonna hang on to Colossians chapter one, verse 15. We have this idea of the Holy Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit. Three parts make up one God. You have God the Father, and I really don't think anybody has ever seen the face of God, the figure of God. Now, we, we have in Genesis, and we'll get to this, it says we're created in the image of God, but I don't know. I, as I look at Scripture, I'm not sure that I can make a case that anybody has actually ever seen God the Father, but then you also have God the Son, who was Jesus, born of Mary in a little town in Bethlehem, and came, did ministry, was crucified on the cross, resurrected on the third day. You have God the Father seated on the throne. Jesus, the Son of God, who is the flesh of God. He's the visible image of an invisible God. And then you have the Spirit of God, or the essence of God. The Hebrew calls it the breath, the breath of God. I know this is oversimplification of this idea of a Trinity God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But hopefully to make it practical, you take an egg. You have one egg, one egg, but it has three separate parts. You have the egg shell, which encompasses everything, but then you have the egg white, which is kind of the clear part, and then you have the egg yolk, which is the yellow part. Three parts make up one egg. Three parts make up one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. It says, then God said, and this is, he's at creation, right? Let us make human beings in our own image. So we are image bearers of God. We're made in the image of God. You are a trinity. You are a triune being. You and I, we're created in the image of God. We are three parts. You have the body, which is your skin, your hair, your teeth, your bones, your blood vessels the physical body, you have your spirit, which I, I think is the emotions, like the thought process, just the, the internal, 
It's, the, it's, it's not the bones. It's, it's the internal. It's the things that you're feeling. But then you have your soul. That is your eternal part that will spend it eternal. So you've got your physical, your emotional, and your eternal. There's some debate on how those three play out. I certainly understand that. I just read and read and read. And this is where I'm at. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every, may, in every way, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body. Paul says you're a triune being. There is a spirit, there is a soul, and there is a body. Now my belief in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, when someone says they saw God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in the fire. They were being burned up. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, looked at her and he goes, well, I think God's in there with them. Abraham, he's sitting there. One day, this is found in Genesis 18.1. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham. Old Abe, how you doing, buddy? Okay. Moses had moments where he saw God. My opinion, based on Colossians 1.15, when someone saw the face of God, specifically in the Old Testament, they saw Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. Look at your neighbor and ask him if they're awake. You know what I'm saying? This is theology. It's heavy. It's hard. Let me give you another theological word. Oh, great. Christophany. One of you girls is pregnant, name your baby that. Oh, this is my baby Christophany. You know, don't do that. Don't do that, poor kid. Christophany means it is an appearance of Jesus before Jesus was born. Jesus was not created in the womb of Mary. The Bible tells us that he existed before creation. Jesus was not created in a stable in Bethlehem. He existed before creation. Creation. And so there's these moments in the Old Testament where people were convinced they saw God, and they did. It was just Jesus who is the visible image of an invisible God. If that makes sense, say amen. Second, first service didn't even get that. They were like, they were half of them were sleeping by Listen, Jesus is what puts skin on God. Jesus is what puts words to God. Jesus is what made God relatable. Now I want to this is why this is so important. That's why I stop in the middle of this Live Loud series and sing this beautiful old Christian hymn for you. This is why this is practical theology. Because before Jesus came to earth as a baby in Bethlehem and lived and did ministry, prior to Jesus coming, humanity had turned God into a bunch of fun-hating rules. Humans had developed this idea about God that he was always mad, he was always angry, he was always heavy-handed, that God was just solely justice. And there was very little mercy mixed into who he was. So a storm comes through and wipes out all your crops. It's not because we live in a fallen world where there's thunderstorms and tornadoes. It's because God's mad at you. What did you do to make God mad? Something bad happens in your life. It's because you must have done something to make God mad. Something wrong in your life. It's because God is mad at you. And Jesus came in the form of a baby in human. He put flesh on the idea of God to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You have the wrong idea about who God is. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 9, the perfect example of this conversation. There is a blind man. And the disciples are like, so Jesus, who's God mad at now? 
Is it this guy? Like, did he tick God off some way? Or is it his parents that God's punishing for something that they've done? He's blind. Something bad is wrong. So who's God mad at it? Is it the man or is it the parents? And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You've missed the whole idea of who God. This happened so that the glory of God could be revealed in this time and in this moment. And so Jesus became a visible image of an invisible God. He became touchable and tangible because the narrative, the story about God was solely on judgment, rules, God's mad and God's angry. So Jesus came to tell a different story about who God is and how he relates to us. Think about it. That's why the religious people couldn't accept Jesus. The religious people had God all figured out. And, and so Jesus comes and he tries to tell this different story. He did not fit their description of what God should be. Jesus wasn't angry. Jesus wasn't ticked off. Jesus wasn't throwing stones at people who'd been caught in sin. The only few times that we see Jesus get angry is when people would misuse the things of God to make money and profit, or when people would use the things of God to oppress people. And they painted this image that God is bad, and God is mad at you, and God is angry, and you'll never see him happy. They painted this negative idea of who God was. And the religious would love to provoke Jesus and say, Jesus, why don't you prove you're really the Messiah from God? We caught this person in sin, Jesus. What do you think we ought to do? And Jesus would get down in the dirt and he would start to write some type of defense of this woman that was caught in adultery. And the religious people couldn't handle that because it went so much against the narrative of who God was in their mind. God was angry. God would say, kill her. We don't tolerate sin. We don't allow sin. Let's get it out of here. And Jesus came to tell a merciful and a gracious side about who God was. I want to make an attempt to make Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, practical and help it make sense. Why Christ had to come as a visible image of an invisible God is so that I can know God's nature. Humanity had it wrong. Humanity had it wrong. They had him as a God who is mean and angry and a bunch of rules, and if you step outside of those rules, somebody's gonna start throwing rocks at you. And Jesus came so we can know who God really is, how he behaves, how he thinks about us. Jesus tells this story about this father that his son, who'd been off in sin, comes back, and it just, he fell into grace and how the father ran after him. That's the story that Jesus came to tell about God. He came to set the record straight of who God is. Not the fake news the enemy tried to tell us. Not the heavy-handed God's always mad at you. Listen, don't get me wrong. There is sin and there is rejection of God and there are very real consequences that come with that. And Jesus would deal with that in its moment. But Jesus also came to paint a picture of a loving, merciful, forgiving God that's approachable, that you can go boldly before the throne of grace. So two things that God used to reveal his nature. First one we talked about, God used Jesus. He became the visible image of an invisible God. He came to tell a different story of what humanity had said. Jesus said, said you know what? You can call him daddy. You can call him Abba. And the religious people just lost it. How dare you? That's so disrespectful. You would just call God daddy. That you would, you would call him. That is so sacrilegious of you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You've missed a part of God's nature. And Jesus came to correct that narrative. But the other way God revealed himself is also found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. God revealed himself through creation. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says that God, through all, through all creation, God's revealed. That's the BKV paraphrase, but that's what it says, right? This is why Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is so important that it says, in the beginning, God created. That's really, there's practical theology in that. In the beginning, God creates. That's why Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is important. It says, then God said, let us make human beings in our own image. You are an image bearer of God. You're created in the image of God. And then he says this, then they'll reign over the fish and the sea, and all the fishermen said amen, and the birds in the sky and the livestock, and all the cowboys said yee-haw, and all the wild animals on the earth and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. Listen, Jesus came to show us the mercy, the approachable side of God, but God used creation to show us some stuff too. Number one, he shows us that God's creative. In the beginning, God created. God, God, God's very creative. I mean, the aardvark, hello, he has a sense of humor too, right? Arkansas, no, I'm sorry, some of y'all from Arkansas, I'm just kidding, I'm just only being serious. God is creative, but God is also generous because in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says, and God gave it to us. Here, I'm, I'm gonna create, but I'm also going to give it to humanity. So we're seeing the nature of who God is. And Paul writes this song to help you stay centered on some of the theological truths about who Jesus is. Verse 16, through Christ, through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can see, the things we can't see, thrones, kingdom, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. All in this hymn ties creation and Christ In the beginning, Jesus was there. It wasn't a stable in Bethlehem. That's just when he was born in. But in the beginning, Jesus was there. He, he wasn't created in Mary's womb. Jesus has always been there. So nudge your neighbor right now, because this is we're moving into some not so boring stuff, right? Okay. So why does creation matter? Why does creation? Why does Christ and creation matter? Because it feels like in this day and time we live in, there is just an attack on this idea that in the beginning God created. And so why does creation matter? So that I can know God's truth. Make him pack this. First, Jesus matters so I can know God's nature. Now creation matters so that I can know God's truth. Listen to me, young people. This is why what you believe about creation really, really matters got an 18 year old getting ready to go off some big university he's going to have professors that don't think and see the world the same way that i do and i'm not scared because we have raised him with the bible and the biblical worldview as his central narrative to his life church always been his life jesus always been in his life and listen young people this is why what we believe about creation matters. There's a huge fight going on in our society and our culture today that Christians are standing up and saying, no, we truly, genuinely believe that in the beginning, God created. It's what we call the biblical worldview. I'm gonna see the world through the biblical perspective, and if the Bible tells me that in the beginning, God created, I'm gonna accept that and believe that to be true. 
So what's the big deal? What does it matter? What does it matter if Big Bang and we all evolved from an Ebola or in the beginning God created? What difference does it make? We're all here now, right? So the Bible has four stories, grossly oversimplified, but the Bible has four stories. The first story is creation. The second story is the fall of man, which is Adam and Eve and a piece of fruit that they disobeyed God and a sneaky snake and a serpent that deceived them. So you have creation, you have the fall of man, then you have redemption, which is what Jesus did on the cross. We read that in Colossians chapter one in this hymn, that how God reconciled everything through the Christ blood on the cross. So you have creation, you have the fall of man, you have redemption, and then you have recreation. There's a day where there's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. Throughout scripture, it talks about the recreation. Daniel talks about it, Ezekiel talks about it. Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, primarily deals with the recreation that is coming someday. So, if the first part of that story, in the beginning God created, if the first part of that story is false, how can I trust any of the rest of it? If the first part isn't real, then how do I know that any of the rest of it is real? If the foundation is not true, then it's potential that everything else is false. So there is an attack on, in the beginning, God created. And it's not just an attack on creation. It's not just an attack on Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's also an attack on Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to the end of Revelation. All the enemy's got to do is get someone to doubt. And since there was nobody there at create, there was no YouTubers. Huh, y'all, check this out, what's going on behind me? Like all this stuff going on. There were no security cameras that we can go back and check the footage on what happened on the second day. And we are such a pictures or it didn't happen culture that we so much have to taste it, touch it, see it, and feel it to believe it. It's so easy to question if there's no video, no pictures, no proof, no evidence. And all the enemy has to do is just get someone to question. That's his main tactic. That's what he did in the fall. So you have creation and the fall of man. That all happens early in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. All he had to do was just create questions, just, just begin to get them to doubt. What did God really say? Is that real? Did, did God really in the beginning create? Watch this, Genesis 3, 1, the serpent. And, and this, we've always talked about the sneaky snake. This is representative of the enemy, Satan, the devil, O Lucifer himself. He snuck into the situation and he convinced Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord has made. That's why snakes are evil, y'all. Come on. Quit having those things as pets. That's not even Christ-like. Have mercy. One day, the serpent asked the woman, and look at this question. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Like you can't, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any of the trees? That's not what he said at all. God said, you can have all this fruit out here. Man, you can have all this. Just one fruit, just give it back to me. But the enemy is just trying to throw halves truths and deception and lies and just trying to get them to question what did God really say? The snake did not just come out and boldface lie to him and go, well, God didn't create all this. It evolved from an Ebola. Well, God hates you. God don't want nothing for you. God's not gonna take care of you. He did not just come out and say, you know what, God's mad at you. He didn't do that. 
all he had to do was get them to question the truth. What did God really say? I'm going to give Satan credit. One thing he is, is he's patient. Because all he's got to do is get someone to question. Because the first generation will question it. The second generation will doubt it. And the third generation will completely reject it. I don't know about you, but I'm looking at American history right now. I'm going back in time to a generation that can, not throwing stones, but a generation completely pushed away from rules and everything they've been taught, and we're just going to be a rebellion generation, and so we're just going to question it. And then my generation came along, and we significantly doubted it, and now we have a generation that is completely rejecting who God is and what he says. So if in the beginning God created is not true, then it's possible that Genesis 1.27 is not true, that God created human beings in his own image. And in his image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. And if I'm not rooted, and some guy can come along and in fancy talk and do a magic show and make me feel good about myself and so forth. So if I'm not rooted and I open up my phone one day or I'm looking on my computer one day and a, a news article from a major news outlet pops up and tells you that there's 58 different gender identities and you're not rooted in the truth of God? Not only are you gonna question, you're gonna doubt. And eventually there's gonna be a generation that comes along and rejects it. And then you begin to hear things like this, well, well what is truth? You just need to do what's true for you. Let me just tell you, truth is not based upon feelings. Wake your neighbor up. It's about to get real up in this church house. All right, now, right? Truth is not based upon your emotions. Truth is not even based upon your circumstances. Even going back to the garden, truth is not based upon what you hear, what you see on Twitter, what's been tweeted and retweeted and retweeted. Just because the enemy says it doesn't make it true. Just because you hear it doesn't mean it's true. And we live in a day and a time with a generation that is totally confused about what truth is. Because we had a generation question it, we had a generation then doubt it, and now we have a generation rejecting who God is. And here's the deal, you would think that this idea of be anything you wanna be, be whatever gender you wanna be, do whatever you wanna do with whoever you want to, just be true to you, just be happy. You would think that would work, but here's the reality. We ain't making people happy. Suicide rates are at the highest rate they've ever been in world history. Depression is at the highest rate it's ever been in world history. Anxiety at an all-time high. Stress at an all-time high. Because we don't know what to believe. There is no center to focus our life on. There is no truth for us to anchor on because we had a generation question, we have a generation doubt, and now we've had a generation rejected and it's wreaking havoc on our emotions because there is no arrow that points north that Christ is the center of it all. What you believe or what you don't believe becomes so powerful. Just because you hear it doesn't mean it's true. Just because you hear it doesn't give it power, especially today. There is so much misinformation and people trying to be funny and satire and so on and so forth. Mark chapter nine tells the story of a man who's bringing his son, who's 
possessed and terrorized by demons. And this father is desperate. And he's looking for the words and he's stumbling over his words. And he's just, Jesus, I'm just desperate. Jesus, if you can, help him. And Jesus stops and he goes, what do you mean if I can? And then he says this, anything is possible if a person hopes. No, it doesn't say hope. Anything is possible if a person will just think positive. Nope, that's not what it says. Anything is possible if you'll just buy my book and these 12 steps to living better. That is not what it says. Jesus says, anything is possible when a person believes. What you believe is so powerful. There is power in belief. Here's the deal. The enemy is going to tell you. He's going to try to get you to question. He's going to try to get you to doubt. The enemy's telling you you're always going to fail. You're always going to have anxiety. You're always going to be depressed. You're always going to be broke. You're always going to struggle. Everybody else is going to be more successful than you. Your marriage is never going to get any better. Your kids are always going to be crazy. And just because the enemy says it, just because you hear it doesn't give its power. It's when you believe it that it moves into a level of power. And that's on the negative side of that narrative, that I can believe the lies, and that's what begins to give them power. (laughs) But if it works on the negative, you know it's going to work on the positive too. That just because I hear it, if I don't believe it, that means it ain't going to come to pass. Jesus said anything is possible to those who believe. So when you believe, Jesus is the answer. When you believe, by his stripes I'm healed. When you believe, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When you believe, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. When you believe, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's where the power comes in and what you believe. And just hearing it is good. Faith comes by hearing. We talked about that last week. But when you say, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's what gives the word of God life and power and even supernatural effect in your life. That's why it's so important what I believe. Young people, it's why it's so important that you believe that in the beginning, God created. Because everything that happens after that is built upon the foundation of truth. That God is your creator, and he loves you, and he's approachable, and he's your daddy, and wants to live in relationship with you. Somebody ought to shout amen. Amen. If I doubt in the beginning God created, I don't know. I got a cousin that's got a tail. We might have come from some kind of alligator down there in Louisiana. I just don't know. If you doubt in the beginning God created then how can I even begin to believe that for by grace I've been saved through faith, not of myself, it's a gift of Like if I can't believe the first line of the story, how can I believe the redemption part of it? And I'm not asking you to blindly believe the creation. There's some incredible books and resources out there. Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel, one of the best. It's the foundation. It's the foundation of the story. Paul writes this song for new Christians that don't, they're not rooted in theology. They don't know. And so he writes this, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. 
He writes this, Christ the Lord is calling. He, he writes this hymn so that they can easily learn some deep, theological truths about who Jesus really is, that he is the one and true and only God in a world that I'm surrounded by a lot of gods. It doesn't matter because Christ is supreme. He was there at creation. He'll be in the middle of my tribulation. He was there at the beginning and he will be there when I need him. Amen, everybody. Jesus is the answer. Whatever you're going Power is in what you believe. Just because the enemy's lying to you about your circumstances, your finances, your marriage, man, let's stand on the true word of God that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. All across this room, every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, I just right now, just in my spirit, some of us in this room are fighting battle with lies. And they're small. All the enemy's doing, trying to get us to, to question, is God really going to be there for me? This pain is so hard and so heavy and so real. Does God really love me? All the enemy's trying to do is create doubt and question. And Father, right now, we're just going to stand. We're just going to stand on the truth of the Word of God. That he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand on that promise. Lord, I pray just as the essence, the Spirit of God is moving in this place. The people who are in the midst of a dark situation, Lord, that their faith would be strong. Their resolve would be strong. Their doubt would be eliminated. Every head bowed, never eyes still closed. You're here in this room today, and you know that you are not in right relationship. Maybe there was a time, a long time ago you were, but you walked away. You're, you're the prodigal. You're the story of that prodigal son that just, just walked away. Or maybe you never have. Maybe you've never been in a relationship with Jesus. Not even sure how you got here. Maybe you came today to, to see a cousin get baptized or something. You're not even sure why you're here, but since the moment you walked in, there has been this spirit of God pulling you. That's him begging you into relationship with him. You're either one of those people, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to walk the aisle. You don't talk to anybody. I just want to lead you in a prayer. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. There's no magical formula, no magic words in this prayer. It's the simplest way I know how to help you confess and believe. And if that's you, right now in this moment, I'm just going to invite you right there at your seat just to pray this prayer with me. Are you ready? Pray this prayer. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, right there at your seat, just say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today because I need you in my life. I don't want that old life anymore. Would you come in and change me? Make me a new person. Forgive me. I may not understand all of this, Today, taking a step of faith and completely surrender my whole life. With every head still bowed, never eyes still closed, you're here this morning. 
I'm not going to embarrass you. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to talk to anybody. I just want to pray for you. And I want you to celebrate this moment. If that's you, you prayed that prayer, I just want you to slip up your hand real high. Come on, so I don't miss it. Anybody here? All right, so I see it. Best decision you've ever made. Anybody else? Come on, lift them up high. Come on, lift it up. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon this room. For those hearts today that are stepping into relationship with you, God, I thank you for a Holy Spirit that loves us and never gives up on us and just keeps pulling and keeps pulling and keeps pulling on us. Father, I thank you for the hands today that said, Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? Father, I love just being a part of a church that, that takes students to camp, takes them on mission trip. Father, we're engaging the next generation so we can anchor their lives in the truth. We can prepare them for the onslaught of the culture that's around them, God, because we want their life to be anchored on the truth that is Jesus. And Father, these hearts today that step into a relationship with you, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Would you surround them with good Christians? Lord, don't let the enemy get them to question or doubt this moment, God, because it's in this moment that they were. And it's in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus we pray. Come on, Hillspring, dig deep. Give God the biggest praise you got in your belly this morning. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.